It's Friday, June 21st, 2013. Welcome to episode 15 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. Hi. I'm Jeff Eaton, digital strategist at uh, Lullabot and your host for Insert Content Here. Uh, every couple of weeks, we get together with fascinating and interesting people doing cool things in the world of content strategy, content management, and uh, other related fields. And uh, we ask them fun and interesting questions and learn about the cool stuff they're doing. This time, we have Margot Bloomstein uh, with us. She's the head of Appropriate Inc. Um, she's the author of the book Content Strategy at Work, and uh, I believe she's now now a lecturer in strategic communications at Columbia University, which is easily one of the uh, one of the more highfalutin titles. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyone yes, that that is true. Um, just just got to add that on Yield LinkedIn. So yeah, <laughs> very excited about that opportunity. Well, congratulations and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I think we first crossed paths at um, the Web Content Conference in Chicago a few years yeah. back. Was that right? Was that around the time that your book, um, Content Strategy at Work, came out? No, I think it was actually a little bit before because Content Strategy at Work came out um, March 2012 because it kind of premiered at South by Southwest. So, oh, that's um, right. That's right. Yeah. It was but a glimmer in my in my eye and in my editorial queue at that point. <laughs> so here's a question. What what kind of time frame did it take to turn that around and actually, you know, produce a book like that? Are we measuring that in weeks or in like in bottles of beer or, or other things? That... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Because there's a lot of different metrics, I think, for measuring time there. <laughs> it's all about choosing oh. your metric. Yeah. No, I would say... Um, I don't write a ton about content strategy, certainly not as much as other folks that are, that are much more regular bloggers and all. Um, I tend to try to focus my commentary on the industry to the brief parenthetical asides and, you know, 30 character prefaces within the context of a tweet. And then I speak a lot about content strategy, um, certainly at different conferences, and I love giving workshops on it and all. Um, but I think when it comes to actually writing about it, you know, uh, pursuing that kind of core competency of content development, I I end up focusing on the much shorter missives um, where maybe I can engage in the comments with somebody or have a conversation or or work with an audience to kind of work through their own problems. But I don't really pursue the long form stuff as much. Um, and I think that's because my my own sort of focus tends to be a little bit more here and there and scattered. And, uh, and I'd much rather kind of get into a deep conversation with somebody about it rather than to just work through my thoughts in in an essay i have a huge amount of respect for people that have the the patience and the um i think editorial maturity to do that to not just spew out their thoughts but then to sit and and kind of work through them and hone and finesse them and that's really what writing a book demands um and i, I think you you definitely see people like produce um shorter or maybe more superficial uh, work kind of across our industry or, or other peripheral areas of our industry um, where they're able to just crank it out and you, you kind of look at it and you're like, 
Well, how did you workshop this with people? Who did you bounce your ideas off of? And did you really sweat over each word? And to me, that's what what, what writing a book entailed. Um, and then, as you said, kind of being a content strategist, writing it for an audience that included other content strategists, as well as copywriters and designers and marketers. Um, I definitely did sweat over every word because I know that they would, uh, I knew that they would care about not just the the topic and the subject matter and the and the ideas that I was espousing, but also the way in which I shared those ideas and the choice of words, the diction, the rhythm of the sentences and how I shaped my thoughts. That that matters a lot to me and, and to those audiences, as well as then what those thoughts look like on the page, given that the audience includes um, designers. And it's almost like you were concerned about the voice. I know. Why would somebody even care about that? But uh, yeah, that that all matters. So it mattered for me over, oh, gosh, I guess about a year, maybe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where I spent probably a good, the good four or five initial months of that year, just doing um, kind of gathering more research and all conducting a lot of interviews. Content strategy at work is largely driven by case studies. Um, which that, was that's, that's actually one of the things that I thought was really, really useful about it. A lot of the stuff that I had been reading up to that point about content strategy that other people were writing, it w- was good, but it was also very like, um, it, it was very workflow and process and, you know, theory oriented and seeing it play out in each of the different case studies from chapter to chapter. And a lot of the discussions about how these different principles were playing out in large and small organizations, I think was one of the really, really valuable things about the book. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. And I mean, that's really, I think what I was looking for in the book. That's what I was looking for in a book about content strategy. And I just had to take the time to write it, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like when we talk about content strategy, or for that matter, content marketing and visual design and design strategy, design as problem solving that sometimes just ends up being more verbal problem solving. When we talk about those parts of user experience design, it's easy to uh, wax poetic about theory. And I think it's important to talk about the theory. It's important to talk about the the strategy and the loftier goals and, and our vision for how how projects and initiatives should ideally work out. Um, but I think what people oftentimes need to complement that theory are the real examples that they can then share with their clients or their bosses and managers to say, this isn't just a theoretical thing. The theory is important, but look, here's how it plays out. The proof of the pudding is there in the eating, and we can see how lots of industries eat it. We can see how lots of industries and organizations of all sizes and budgets should and do pursue content strategy, and some without even using that term for it. And that's fine, because we can still learn a lot from them. And I have to give the the credit for a lot of that, um, that approach to Krista Stevens, because as I said, I spent many months kind of going through the interviews and doing the research and kind of reworking my research, because it was things that I'd been like talking about and looking at for several years. But conducting those interviews for the case studies. And I was really kind of afraid to start writing it, I think, because I wasn't sure what structure it needed to take. And it was Krista. Um, and then Carolyn Wood also echoed her to say, this needs to be more case study driven. It needs to start with the stories, then we can unpack the thinking behind them. 
So you you've you've been working in in this field for a while, like longer than I think a lot of people even knew the word content strategy existed. What got you going down the path to you know working in content strategy and eventually you know writing a book and you know all that work? Ooh, um, that's a good question. As we as we take the wayback machine here, the diddly diddly because everybody seems to have come from a different background in content yeah. strategy. No one like. You know, no one turned 15 and said, I want to go to school and become a content strategist. Right. But I mean, I think if we, if we want to go back that far, I remember turning 15 and having someone tell me, you know, seeing that I was taking a lot of art classes in high school, having someone tell me, have you thought about studying design in a few years when you go to college? It's like art that you make money at. That was the description I remember hearing. And I was kind of like, oh, that, you know, that sounds like a viable career path than this art that you make money at. <laughs> it certainly and sounds think, more viable than like performance art. So let's exactly, go. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, but I think for me, I attribute my career to doing, um, a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons. And <laughs> I think that probably started really with pursuing, um, studying design, majoring in design in college, because it was art that you could make money at. And uh, when I was applying to colleges and visiting different colleges and universities, visiting with my parents and all, um, I had looked at a few different programs. And the one at Carnegie Mellon really did a good job of positioning design as problem solving. And um, I visited the school, fell in love with Pittsburgh, really liked that it was a conservatory program in the context of a broader university. I don't know that I really knew why that was a valuable thing, um, but yeah, it kind of it made sense for me to go there. And then with the power of uh, of scholarships and whatnot, it also made a lot of financial sense for me to go there. Um, so not always the right reason to pick a school, but it worked out really well for me because they position design as problem solving, and you can. I feel like I still use those same techniques that I learned there, but rather than kind of pulling levers and applying tools of um, the density of information on the page and color and communication and answering problems through typography, instead I'm looking at diction and style and tone and content types. But I'm still always asking questions of, well, what are our communication goals? Who are our target audiences? Um, what's the priority of, of needs for the business that, that's embarking on this project or initiative? Those are all questions that I think I started asking there. And um, I didn't come from a journalism background or a copywriting background the way a lot of other content strategists have. Instead, I came from a visual design, a communication design background. Um, and then uh, senior year, when I was interviewing uh, with different agencies and all, um, I, again, this was kind of a doing the right thing, but sort of going about it entirely the wrong way. Um, I had interviewed with the design and information architecture groups at Sapient. And this was about sort of in 1999 or 2000. And um, I remember in a, in a phone interview with some folks on the information architecture team there, um, because we weren't using terms like user experience yet, but um, some of the IAs asked me a question, you know, well, how would you solve this problem? And I think I phrased my answer by saying, well, you know, first I would want to understand this about the client's communication goals and maybe what they're already using to communicate with their their audience, either offline or on or their brochures or whatever. Um, how are they organizing that stuff? I don't know that I was using the term content yet, but they pushed back on me and they said, those are great questions, but 
ours isn't the group that asks a lot of those questions. You need to talk with the content strategy team. So they pushed me over to content strategy and, um, and the team there took a risk on me. I think they, they were incredibly patient, especially as I look back at, at some of the, um, the big errors that I made in, in kind of forming some of my early perspectives around content strategy and consulting. But um, yeah, I, I was hired into a content strategy group that had the name content strategy and comprised other people that were already there that were content strategists. Um, so it wasn't a new, it isn't a new term. That was something they were using in 2000, certainly something that was around at Razorfish and other organizations, a lot of big consulting. And then I think there are other folks that have come to the profession more from um, the technical communications background and, and that sort of industry and have kind of come into asking a lot of the same questions, but from a very different perspective, which is pretty exciting. I think that's the the diversity that then allows us when we're taking on new projects or or talking with prospective clients to say, you know what, the, the kinds of needs that you have, you need a slightly different angle on content strategy. Let me refer you to one of my friends. Let me refer you to another contractor that can maybe help you or bring the right set of experience, the right types of questions to the table. That diversity is really what strengthens the content strategy industry. Well, yeah, it, it's been very interesting, you know, especially getting a chance to, you know, do, do interviews like this on the podcast. What how, what a staggering level of diversity there is in terms of the, the different disciplines that people came from, you know, before arriving in content strategy and even inside of the development community. I think historically there's always, you know, the, the terrible idea of, you know, the developers build the website and then content gets poured in like, you know, like like batter or something like that. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe you get delicious waffles and maybe you get a, a terrible, disastrous episode of I Love Lucy when the site launches or something like that. But, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I think that's sort of the way a lot of people have envisioned the process. But as more developers have um, worked on a lot of really large, content-rich projects, it's been fascinating to see a lot of them react to content strategy with this attitude of, well, it's got a name. I get that that's just the stuff that you're supposed to do so that the project doesn't explode in flames. You know, <laughs> oh, it's it's a thing now? Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it it is great. And I think some of them initially maybe pushed back with a, a sense of maybe bitter irony in there. But when we look back at what typically has made those projects go up in flames, it's because the content showed up late, or we were designing backends for content types that didn't exist, and then trying to kind of force fit them in there, or, um, or, or maybe planning systems, whether on the front end or the back end, where we were expecting a team of copywriters and videographers and photographers to, to kind of feed that beast on a weekly basis and make sure that we always had fresh content for the blog. And then we realized that team was maybe one overtaxed person in the marketing department. When we realized that we make the modern web out of content and that people go to the web, not that we ever go to it anymore, but we use it. Um, but when we use the web, it's to get it content, to find out store hours, to look at a product array, to see what our friends have posted today. All of that is about interacting with content. And that isn't ancillary stuff. It is the stuff. It is the stuff that we make this experience from. So we need to consider um, where is it coming from? Who's making it? At what frequency? And what's its form? What's it? What sort of shape does this stuff have? 
the the additional question that comes in in a lot of the the speaking and the writing you do is the importance of the why questions. Why is a particular message being communicated? Why is this particular tone important to you? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's what's the underlying essence of what you're getting at? I think it was a CMS Expo this year. Um, you did an exercise where you know everyone got to work on revamping the messaging for their imaginary college or uh, international bank. And yes, yeah, I think we did a pretty good job at uh, tweaking the messaging architecture for our bank. You were at the bank. Okay, cool. I was going to ask. <laughs> I hope that our that our stock prices eventually reflect the hard work that was done there. <laughs> But I, I think it was really interesting. It really helped highlight just how important those th- those kinds of questions are in shaping a lot of the content-oriented decisions. Because that stuff, you know, what 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 is important? What are we trying to communicate? What are our priorities? Those things those things bubble up into everything from how you end up breaking down content models because that helps inform what's actually important to reuse and repurpose and you know what's what's right. ancillary content and what's really your core assets those things grow out of what's really primary to what you're doing i believe you also mentioned that it helps inform what a lot of people i think would categorize as visual design decisions not necessarily content or structural decisions now listening to your background i can see there being a strong connection between design thinking and this content work right right well and and i should preface my response by saying whenever i hear someone say so i've heard you speak at a few conferences and what i took away was i always think they're going to say poop jokes or <laughs> you taught me the meaning of the term swoop and poop so thank you for keeping it much more um professional than than i just made this conversation I do my best. but yes thank you <laughs> yeah i mean i think um what you're getting at there is this idea that whether we're working as visual designers or um, or content marketers or copywriters, none of our decisions should be arbitrary. The moment they become arbitrary and subjective, they become just matters of taste, which which are fine. But to me, that's always pulled design the the, the practice of design back from being a profession about problem solving and more into the realm of art where maybe everyone has an opinion and there's a million different ways to interpret something and I'll, I think that that is fine for art and for artists but I think when you're not just trying to communicate but to solve problems through communication then I think you're talking more about design, um, sort of little d design, and uh, which would also include other aspects of user experience, including content strategy. When we talk about those things being arbitrary, when it was, well, you know, I, I chose this typeface because I, I thought, you know, it made sense. Or, um, you know, when we used to hear about cases of like, well, we wanted it to be purple because the CEO really loves purple, like those types of issues. That's not strategic. Exactly. It's not strategic and it's not really solving a problem. But if you say, well, you know, we needed to choose purple because it has this connotation for our target audience and our closest competitor uses green or orange. We need it to be seen as a little bit, um, we need to be seen as very different from them, but still kind of hip and friendly. Then, then it makes sense. Then it makes sense to go in that direction to make those choices. And that's why I feel like as content strategy, as we look at that as problem solving also, 
it allows us to pull it back from that idea that, well, anybody with Microsoft Word can be a writer and, and all content is equally valid. It isn't if it doesn't solve problems, if it doesn't help an organization align their content creation, align their content marketing with their communication goals and pursue it in a sustainable manner that fits the budget and the time and creativity and talent of their staff. I mean, those are all constraints that we deal with as well. And I mean, I think that that's one of the, um, I guess maybe that's the other side of problem solving to me. When we're solving for X, we're doing so within very defined constraints. When we fail to acknowledge those constraints or fail to discover them working with our clients or, you know, if you're in-house in an organization working with like folks outside of the marketing department, but when we fail to understand like, all right, who's actually going to be doing this? Is it a freelance copywriter we're bringing in, the intern in the marketing department? Are we working with a team that includes a lot of videographers, but none of them really like copywriting? When we deal with those constraints, then we're able to solve problems in a much more sustainable way, whether that means, you know, writing editorial style guidelines that, um, you can only understand if you understand like Chicago Manual of Style backward and forward, or are you writing editorial style guidelines that more closely resemble, say, Mad Libs, where you're saying, pick a verb from this list, a noun from this list, and your subheads will all be okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think those are the types of constraints that we have to deal with as content strategists that we have to wrangle um, to make sure that our work is useful and usable and sustainable. See, now I'm just obsessed with the idea of Mad Libs-driven content input forms. I've done, I've created a lot of those, especially for organizations that don't have time to think creatively about their copy. Instead, let's make sure that they can still make good copy without having to overthink it. Let them just pick one from this list, one from that list, and and have that work for them for a while. I, man, now, now I want to make a, something called like a postomatic. You just like pull a lever and it creates a post. But I think that might actually be uh, a content marketing startup waiting to happen. <laughs> I kind of think that might be how horse ebooks gets a lot of its content. Like, let's pull something out of this book, something out of here, and there we go. <laughs> One of the one of the subjects that you've been talking about recently is uh, working towards like slow experiences with content, and I think there's two things about that that are interesting. One is talking about the experience aspect of content because usually that's something that's punted on like the UX side or the visual design side. You know, the user experience is all about the widgets and the input mechanisms and the presentation, not necessarily the content itself. And then also the slow aspect because. There, there aren't a whole lot of people talking about the value of slow in our industry. Yeah. The, let me talk about the first part of that first. The idea that content isn't part of the experience, that just makes me giggle because maybe guffaw, I don't know. But when you look at some experiences that are much more streamlined, um, like say in most apps where content is the the affordances and the buttons and the means of interacting with the the experience itself, how can you say it's not part of the experience? And then when you actually look at the words in that content, if we're talking about copy, um, when we look at different calls to action, um, do they need instructional copy? Do they not? Are we able to reduce things to just single strong verbs or do they require maybe a little bit more exposition? Again, we're talking about content as the means of interaction. That's the experience. 
the, I think the more you're able to simplify something down to just the content, when the, the content becomes the interface, that's, that's the experience. And then there's nothing, there's no fluff and nonsense between the user and their interactions. I, I am interested in the slow aspect of it too. Like the, yeah. talking about content for slow experiences. Can you elaborate that on that a little bit? Uh, let me elaborate by sharing um, some stuff that I was just um, that I just had the opportunity to read uh, in the Atlantic this week. There's an excellent, excellent article called "Machines Can't Flow: The Difference Between Mechanical and Human Productivity." Linda Stone wrote it, and um, this excites me so much because nowhere in the article does she use the term content strategy or slow experiences or anything, but that's exactly what she's talking about. Basically, she's positing that um, we've long confused output and outcome. In other words, we say we want things to be faster. Machines allow us to do things more quickly, whether it was saying, you know, get a washing machine at home so that you too, the housewife, can be much more productive or a typewriter or now a computer or having our devices with us all the time so we can be much more productive. We say we're being more productive. We're doing more stuff. We're multitasking, if that's even a thing. But we may not be doing more things well. We may just be doing more things and then having to go back and address the errors in them because we weren't able to focus on them. We weren't able to concentrate on individual tasks at hand. More blog posts on the homepage. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of the issue um, with multitasking. More and more um, social researchers and scientists say we don't really multitask. We're able to monotask many things in sequence. But if you try doing multiple things at once, you're not really able to give them the attention they deserve. So she quotes um, Mihai Chinksent Mihai. He coined the term flow, which he described as being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. In other words, it's like when we go to YouTube and suddenly a half an hour has gone by and we're like, where did the time go? I was just focusing on that. And Csikszentmihalyi wasn't talking about YouTube, but he was talking about, well, what makes us most happy? How do we derive the most satisfaction from our work? And it's when we're able to focus on that work, focus on the one thing that we're trying to accomplish on a website, not be distracted by peripheral advertising or even, you know, additional merchandising of complementary content that says, hey, we know you're looking at this product, but look at this one and this one and this one, or we know you're reading that story, but here's a bunch of other related items. That's the stuff that interrupts flow. And um, at any rate, the article really, really excites me to see her talking about this outside of the context of content strategy, because um, she's talking a lot about, well, how do we measure engagement? And that's really what's key. When we talk about machines and outcomes, that's fine, because more output is a great metric for machines. But for people, the most powerful metric is engagement. And that's all about the processes and the outcomes and the quality of their work and the quality of their experience, whether it's online or not. So when I talk about content strategy for slow experiences, I've been researching how do we first identify experiences that should be slowed down? Not all online experiences should be slower to be better. But some should be. Some experiences should require users to think through their decisions a bit more fully, to validate their decisions before they move on. 
and also to be able to explore and discover before they move on from a concept. In other words, to to have different ways to dig through the material, to map out those new neural pathways, to create stronger memories through the process of discovery. Um, and then I'm looking at a few different ways that successful websites are able to slow down their users and to say, all right, understand your decisions before you move on from this point, focus on the task at hand, focus on the content that we think is most important or that you think is most important. And it's interesting because it's um, it's an exchange of respect for the user and their time and how do we balance that so we're not asking too much of them, but also respect for the content. And one of the examples that I tend to look at a lot is um, from the Crutchfield website where they give you lots of different content types to support your different learning habits, um, whether you're a visual learner or you, you prefer to learn from videos or by reading long form content. You go to crutchfield.com if you want to research, like, say, um, a home audio purchase or you want to buy a new camera lens, that type of thing. And um, you can read tons of content there. You can read all about different lenses, look at examples side by side of if you're to buy like an f2.8 versus a 4.5 lens, that type of thing. And there's a lot of content to support your needs when you're looking to make a purchase. So they're respecting their users. They're respecting the content, not by saying, well, here's a bunch of bullet points you can read a million other places and see the same typo replicated all across the web, but rather here's a lot of long form content and paragraphs that will draw you in because we've taken the time to write them cohesively. That's um, that's pretty exciting. We for a long time thought that the web had to be made of just bullets and brevity and it doesn't have to be like that and it shouldn't be like that in some cases. The crutchfield.com website, they've made a, a real serious investment in that. I, I pulled up uh, one of the camera lenses that I've been looking at. They have things like articles about why different kinds of lenses are well-suited to different kinds of tasks and what kinds of cameras right. you can use it with and, you know, what, you know, you might not even know it would work on this kind of camera body. And, what, and now that you're thinking about it, what different kinds of cameras are well-suited for different kinds of tasks? And before you know it, you've gone down the Wikipedia path and, you know, you've just read six articles and you look up and go, <laughs> ah, I missed lunch. Yeah. I have a friend that talks about that as going on the Wikipedia binge. I've seen him some days where I'll see him like maybe in the early morning and he looks bleary eyed and I'll always be like, did you, were you like out late last night? You know, thinking he was like, you know, hitting the bar scene or whatever. And it's always, no man. Wow. Wikipedia. <laughs> I was hitting Wikipedia really hard because you hit that sense of flow where you're reading good, useful content. I think for a lot of organizations and a lot of companies, that's a, that's a scary leap. You know, so much of the metrics that we've trained ourselves to look at are things like, you know, how quickly does someone make a purchase? How much, you know, how much time does it take right. to convert someone to whatever outcome we're looking for? It takes a, it takes a willingness to sort of invest in a relationship that isn't directly focused on the purchase you're about to make. But I don't think it's that far from from the reality in many organizations, especially when I see cases where people champion content marketing and saying, well, you know, we, we all just really need to be producing a lot more content. It's that sort of scattershot approach that if we just produce more, maybe something in there is going to stick and going to resonate with our target audiences. That's, I think, one viewpoint that tends to generate a lot of waste. Um, in my experience, it takes just as much time to produce 
a ton of repetitive and a ton of maybe less useful content. Um, top 10, top 10 lists. Yeah, exactly. As it does to produce one good, useful, articulate piece of content. It's a bigger investment, but I think those same organizations that are willing to just fund lots and lots and lots of content marketing, um, they might be well served by taking a step back to say, well, let's, let's produce less, but make sure it actually meets the needs of our users and aligns with the communication goals of our brand. Before we go, there's one more question that I'll, that I'll try to squeeze in. For organizations that have sort of siloed some of this thinking off into like the, the IA and, you know, the, the implementation side and aren't really thinking of it as, as well integrated with the kind of design thinking that, you, that you're discussing, kind of problem solving mentality. What, what kind of, what kind of steps would you recommend the folks inside of those organizations start taking to try to, try to move the needle a bit to try to bring back um content to more of a, a strategic yeah. issue rather than just a an output that's challenging because it takes it demands bravery um there's a lot of courage that goes into content strategy because there's a lot of politics that go into content um but i always recommend looking at the source that funds content in other words we all have to rely on budgets either from our from our clients or from our our companies the funding for content comes from looking at well what's doing well for us what is our most profitable product what's our most profitable service what's that generating and where is it missing the mark so i always like to look and say well what's our toughest problem how are we not meeting needs? Where are we failing our users? Where could we be more profitable? And um, and let's try solving that with content because content doesn't have to be expensive. There's a lot that we can do that kind of addresses some low-hanging fruit to improve an experience, to make the user's pathway through it that much more cohesive, to try out different content types. But I think once we're able to frame problem solving in terms of profitability and realize that content can be the thing to make our organizations that much more successful, content strategy is the natural answer to make sure that work that we're doing doesn't waste time, doesn't waste money, and is actually sustainable. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you here, and I, I hope we'll get a chance to, to talk more. Me too. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Insert Content Here.